Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Olivia DeBercier. And I'm Sophia Osborne. And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store over on Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash Beyond Blathers. Now, this week, Sophia is going to be giving us the part two of last week's episode. So if you haven't listened to our clownfish episode, go give that a listen first. We talk all about the like adorable interactions that clownfish and anemone have. And we are going to struggle to say anemone again in this episode. <laughs> yes. As I can already tell, I'm like stumbling over it. So yeah, Sophia, we're going to get into it. Yeah, totally. I would definitely recommend listening to that episode because there's so many fun facts in it that I did not know about the clownfish. And we talk about Finding Nemo, of course. And yeah, I'm not really going to be talking about the anemone clownfish anemone clownfish relationship (laughs) in this episode because I don't want to be too repetitive. So yeah, just go listen to that first and then come back. And also Olivia is recording from a kind of special place. You're You're in Dinosaur Provincial Park at the moment, right? Yeah, I'm actually in Calgary right now. So I was in Dinosaur Provincial Park all day today. Unfortunately, the Wi-Fi in Dinosaur is not amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no worries. It's an amazing place. I mean, for those of you who don't know what Dinosaur Provincial Park is, we did talk to past park interpreter Amanda Rooney on a previous episode when we talked about uh, Pachycephalosaurus, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about Dino then. But yeah, it's, it's this amazing UNESCO World Heritage Site. And... It's like this piece of land in southern Alberta in Canada that's like looks completely different from the area around it. It is basically just the flattest farmland you can imagine all around it. And then there's this like chunk basically taken out of the ground is what it looks like. And you walk into this, you know, hoodoo formation, like like as far as you can see are these amazing what look like mini mountains almost. And it is an incredibly rich fossil area. Over 58 species of dinosaur have been found there. And a lot of, uh, you know, amazing discoveries have happened there. So if you ever happen to come to Alberta, I highly recommend checking it out. I think it's like crazy underrated as a site in Canada because it's just beautiful and a super unique ecosystem. They have this river running through the area and it feeds these cottonwood trees which are really unique in Alberta and you get some incredible like migratory birds and different species going through that area it's like very deserty there's rattlesnakes there's black widows yeah it's just a a really neat place and it was formed by you know thousands of years ago there was this massive ice sheet ice sheet big glacier all over Canada and when that glacier started melting it formed this big big lake and this big river and it just sort of like washed away a whole chunk of soil and land and left this essentially like hole in the ground and and revealed all these fossils so you can find fossils from I think it was like 78 to 75 million years ago that's just off the top of my head so that might not be the exact right numbers but somewhere around then 
yeah, anyway, that's just sort of my my spiel on dinosaurs. It's just a really neat place. We did a, a Centrosaurus bone bed hike today. Um, so they do guided tours. Uh, kind of an interesting part of the park is that a very small portion of the park is actually public. So there's like camping and stuff, but it, it's very like restricted. And then the rest of the park is a preserve that you're not allowed to go into unless you have a permit or your staff or you're on a guided tour. And so this, this hike was a guided tour that brought us to this bone bed where that you have all these you know, triceratops looking <laughs> um, dinosaurs. And there's bones like literally everywhere. Um, and there were so many centrosaurus there that the paleontologists essentially were like, you know, we have what we need. Public's welcome to go up there and see these all like bones literally embedded in the ground and just like little pieces of bone scattered everywhere, everywhere you look. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah, that sounds so cool. I never went to Dino when I was in Alberta, but I'll have to go someday (laughs) it's funny because it it's kind of out of the way (laughs) like there's nothing around it so I feel like you really have to make an effort to go out of your way if you're in Calgary it's like an hour and a half out of Calgary no that's that's a lie two hours and a half but it's super worth it and the campsite is beautiful like just ideal no bears (laughs) (laughs) it's warm there's trees it's just lovely did you two camp yeah, we did camp. So, yeah, it was a perfect night for it. It's really cold in Edmonton right now. Uh, so it was nice to be in a place that, like, has summer weather again. We're going to go to Drumheller tomorrow. And Drumheller is another, like, iconic dinosaur town in Alberta. It's called the Badlands. More, like, hoodoo formations, deserty environment. And they have the Royal Tyrell Museum there. Uh, and so we're going to go check out some dinosaurs at the museum. Anyway, we should probably get on to uh, the sea anemone. It's pretty different from dinosaurs. But... <laughs> So I don't have a good transition from that. <laughs> but before we get into that, of course, we have to talk about what Blathers has to say about it. So if you bring a sea anemone to Blathers, he'll say, Medusa herself would be impressed by the sea anemone. The pretty predator loves to wave its colorful flowing locks about, but these gorgeous tresses are, in fact, deadly tentacles surrounding a hungry mouth. Triggered by the slightest touch, these tentacles harpoon victims with neurotoxin. The sea anemone then pulls the helpless, hapless prey into its mouth for a spot of lunch. I say, let this be a lesson. Never, ever make an enemy out of an anemone. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't have anything to fact check about this. It was it was all accurate. So yeah, it sounds pretty legit. Let's I guess let's get into it. To talk a bit about the taxonomy of sea anemones, they are in the class Snideria, which also includes jellyfish, corals, and hydra. And the thing that makes Snideria Snideria is that they all have stinging cells. And actually, did you know that the word Snideria comes from the Latin word snide, which means nettle, like stinging nettle? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. It's a fun fact for you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so unlike jellyfish, anemones don't have a Medusa life cycle stage, which is kind of funny because Blathers said Medusa herself would be impressed, but (laughs) they don't have that Medusa life cycle stage, which I'm not going to explain now, (laughs) but to learn more about that, you should go listen to our moon jellyfish episode, Mm -hmm. which is a classic. And we'll talk more about the sea anemone life cycle in a bit here. But yeah, so like Olivia said last episode, 
sea anemones get their name from a type of flower called the anemone. So like the land anemone. And again, we talked about this in the seahorse episode, but like, why not call these anemones and then the flowers land anemones? Like, just there's just a land superiority complex. <laughs> I agree. It's very biased. <laughs> yes. But the land anemone is a very cute, colorful flower. So I kind of get the name, but I also don't really think they look that similar. Like, it doesn't look like the flower has tentacles or anything. It's, it's just kind of like a pretty flower. But... Yeah, so most anemones are pretty small to kind of get into the description. They usually are about one to five centimeters, or that's like half an inch to two inches in diameter, and then one and a half to 10 centimeters, or like half an inch to four inches in length. But some can be really big. There There are a couple species that can be like more than a meter, like almost two meters in diameter. Oh my god. That's that's big. That's like I feel like that could eat me. Like if if my foot accidentally fell into an anemone that size, yeah, I'd probably right? scream. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be like, "Oh, cute anemone." I'd be like, "I'm never setting foot in the water again." I mean, that's like when you're in the ocean and you're kind of thinking about all the crazy things that are down there, like that's probably one of the things, like a huge anemone. Oh, just thinking of all those like little sticky tentacles wrapping themselves around my feet. Yeah, and like mm. they probably have a pretty big mouth too Yeah, at that size. So anemones are soft-bodied, tubular, carnivorous animals, which everything I read like really emphasized this point that they're carnivorous and they're predators. Like I guess because people wouldn't think that about them. And they just kept being like, oh, they may look cute, but actually they're vicious predators. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So yeah, we'll we'll get into that a bit. But yeah, they have this tube-shaped body with a flat base called a basal disc that attaches them to the substrate, like a rock or boulder. But there are also some burrowing species of anemone that will like bury themselves in sand, mud, or gravel on the seafloor which I definitely didn't Whoa. know. I didn't know that either. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool. And so, yeah, they're like this tube with a flat bottom and a flat top. And the top has a slit-like mouth in the center. And then it's surrounded by one or more rows of the iconic tentacles. And they can have anywhere from a dozen to hundreds of tentacles. And speaking of the mouth, it is also an anus. That is like the one opening that they have. <laughs> that's fun sea creatures they love having a mouth as an anus totally it's like very common (laughs) (laughs) it's like a mouth an anus and also sometimes they like give live birth out of their mouth too it's such a multi-purpose hole (laughs) it is (laughs) very efficient of them yeah so anemones are loaded up with stinging cells that are called nematocysts and those are used to capture prey and interestingly Some of this prey can be like jellyfish and corals, which are also snideria. So there you go. But these cells are found throughout their body, which I didn't know. I thought they would just be in the tentacles, but they are found throughout the body. But they're most concentrated in the tentacles. So each tentacle has thousands of these stinging nematocysts. And each nematocyst 
is like a little harpoon that shoots into the prey and grabs onto them and pulls them towards the anemone's mouth. And that's why anemones feel so sticky to us because they're literally like trying to kind of like harpoon our skin. And some anemones, like Blather said, also have like a poisonous neurotoxin in the harpoons that they'll like inject into their prey to immobilize them. And then like Blather said, they'll pull in their prey and swallow it whole <laughs> and then spit out any non-digestible parts, which is wow. yummy. <laughs> <laughs> Yum. Yeah, and that that's cool too because I would expect from that description that like the harpooning would be much more painful to humans, but I guess our skin is too thick. Yeah, they're like, they're trying. They're really trying to eat us. <laughs> they're doing their best. <laughs> they it's just two microscopic harpoons. One interesting fact that I found was that anemones don't have any visible sensory organs. Like they don't have eyes or ears. They're pretty simple. But they apparently can determine whether something is edible or not, like a rock versus a fish. Or there's even like some kind of test they did where they gave an anemone a piece of paper and it like latched onto it and then it threw it away because it knew that it wasn't edible. But then they gave it a piece of paper that was soaked in clam juice and it did eat that. So that's kind of cool. That's crazy. How does that even work? I don't know. Is it just like chemical senses? Like that's extraordinary. Yeah, I didn't see anything about how it actually works biologically but like yeah they don't they don't have like a nose wow. or anything They're so some very mysterious creatures out there mm-hmm. sometimes I think you know humans we have all these like fancy things going on but we could work just as well if we didn't have eyes or ears <laughs> yeah literally like it's a pretty nice life to just kind of chill on a rock and be poisonous and just maybe you have a little clownfish friend yeah that sounds fun. What a good time. So where are anemones found? Like, I, I guess I've never really thought that much about it. Where, where can you find them? Yeah, definitely. Well, they're honestly found basically everywhere. Shallow waters, deep waters, all over the world. I've definitely seen them a lot in the intertidal zone. So some anemones do like to kind of be in that intertidal zone where they're going to get, you know, exposed to the air and then covered up. But some like to be just in deeper water where they'll be wet all the time. And if they do get exposed, they kind of draw their tentacles in kind towards their mouth. And then they just look like a little lump. Like they don't have the tentacles all spread in the air or anything, you know. So mm-hmm. if you've ever seen them in like on a rock that's been exposed or something, like they don't look as beautiful. They just kind of look like a weird little lump. They look like a pincushion. Yeah. Or like like a weird moldy tomato. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's cool too because I feel like I haven't really seen I mean I've so- seen some cool colored ones, but mostly around like where my dad lives and stuff they're kind of like brown or brownie orange or like light, you know, red or something, but mm-hmm. I saw lots of cool ones while I was doing research like there's ones that are like strawberry anemones that are so cute like little pink ones that really do look like little strawberries or there's like some amazing really big green ones that are like a bright green so yeah there's lots of diversity there's actually over a thousand species of anemone so so much diversity and like so much of what I'm talking about I'm kind of like 
some of them do this and some of them do that. Like they they do, you know, have pretty different features or or at least different sort of types of reproduction or size or that kind of thing. Yeah. And like I was saying, they can they can live in shallow water, but they can also live in really deep water, like 10,000 meters deep. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. They're just taking over the ocean. Yeah. And like many marine creatures, the greatest diversity are found in the tropics. Oh, tropics are just bursting with life. I would just love to go check that out. Yeah, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so we know that anemones have this mutualistic relationship with clownfish, but do they have symbiosis with other things too? Yeah, they definitely do. The relationship with clownfish is definitely the most famous relationship that they have. Like if you look up anemone symbiosis and stuff, like everything is going to be about clownfish. But like you explained in the clownfish episode, clownfish like need to have the relationship with anemones. Like it's like an obligate relationship for them, but for but for the anemone they don't necessarily need to have a relationship with a clownfish. Like, you're not going to find clownfish in every single anemone. And there are other probably more important relationships for them. (laughs) It's very unrequited love here. Yeah, like, no offense. Clownfish should have a Taylor Swift (laughs) song. Yeah, so one really important mutualistic relationship is between sea anemones and certain algae, which is quite similar to coral. So sometimes algae species will live inside the anemone's cells, especially in the tentacles. And this is part of the reason that some anemones have like such beautiful, interesting colors is because of this algae, which is the same as coral. Like if you take away the algae from coral, it's just white and that's what coral bleaching is. Mm. So the sea anemones benefit from the algae's photosynthesis which provides them with oxygen and food. And in return, the algae are protected by the anemone's stinging cells to avoid predation from herbivores. So this is kind of the anemone's thing, right? Is like, they're just, if you can get in good with the anemone, then you get well protected. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not just fish, like the clownfish that are taking advantage of this, but also algae, which I didn't even think about, but it makes a lot of sense. And then aside from the clownfish, there are some other fish that can have mutualistic relationships with anemones, like the cardinal fish, as well as some shrimps, snee snails, sea snails, snee snails, (laughs) (laughs) snee snails, (laughs) and some crabs, including hermit crabs, which is cool. That's so smart. It's like, just find a well-defended home and you're all set. Yeah. So these these critters are on the right side of the anemone, but what about uh, what about humans? Can can anemones hurt humans? Yeah, I think you talked about this a bit in your clownfish episode that there are some that can be dangerous for humans. It's cool because a lot of anemone information comes from British Columbia, where I live, just because we have a lot of species of anemones, and I guess they're of interest to like scientists and aquariums and stuff here. So in British Columbia, we have a species of anemone called the fish-eating anemone or rose anemone, which are very different names. (laughs) Different vibes. Yeah. (laughs) And that species can grow up to 30 centimeters tall and wide, which is almost a foot, 
and they have a pretty powerful sting that can capture a whole fish and damage human skin. You're not going to be like, you know, severely poisoned and die from the neurotoxin, but the the harpoon's strong enough to damage human skin. I wonder if it's like a jellyfish sting where like it really hurts and it burns, but like it, depending on the species, won't necessarily kill you. I'm curious. Yeah, well, I don't think people are killed by anemones, but it is the same, the nematocytes, that's what jellyfish have too, yeah. right? And like, that's why um, with, you know, with a jellyfish sting, like you don't want to like be rubbing it in or something because then you're just like releasing like any of those harpoons that haven't been released yet. You're just like going to release all of them. So it will hurt a lot. Same with like peeing on it and stuff like that. Yeah. If you like trigger the nematocytes, they're going to keep firing. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that sounds so painful. I know. <laughs> like I don't want to be around uh, like Portuguese man of war or whatever. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> but yeah, another cool thing that I read is that in some species, if anemones move too close to each other, they'll actually fight each other. So some species that engage in this have like thicker club-like tentacles that will emerge from under their main tentacles. And they'll begin slowly attacking and damaging each other, trying to like battle it out for that spot. And this can end up with one or both of the anemones dying. What? Yeah. That sounds like the most like slow-mo fight that could possibly happen. Like it's I can't really imagine slow-mo. them moving really quickly. <laughs> they're just yeah. like really slowly bludgeoning each other to death. <laughs> yeah, it's like they're stinging each other, bludgeoning each other. <laughs> oh god. It's wild. Wow. I mean, wow. Nature is amazing. So, okay, we we got the the weird <laughs> anemone competition thing here down but um like how do they reproduce we, we talked about they don't have sensory organs they don't really seem to move around too much how are they living how do they reproduce it's a good question right like for animals that kind of stay in one place reproduction is such a huge question and i even think of barnacles which are really attached to the substrate and that's why they have the largest penis in the world so i mean compared to their body size (laughs) that's a shocking fact to anyone you need to listen to the barnacle episode and get the down low on that yeah you need to listen to that episode because it's like wild but yeah for anemones there's quite a few different strategies and i think it's one of the most interesting things about them some species will actually use like a combination of different techniques depending on the situation Yeah, so some anemones are viviparous, meaning that their young develop inside the body of the parent, like in humans. So these anemones use internal fertilization and then release fully formed young from their mouths, like I said. So that's one strategy. But most anemones can reproduce asexually through budding, which is when a part of the individual breaks off and becomes a new anemone. And I feel like anemones are like the kind of classic example of budding that you learn about in high school science. But yeah, so this can be a really useful strategy because a lot of the time, like, you're stuck on a rock with no other anemones around. And budding is actually, like, very exciting to me. I don't know. It's just so kind of foreign. (laughs) Like, I can't imagine doing this that you can just 
like split off and clone yourself. It feels so sci-fi. Yeah, it really does. There are a few different ways to bud. So one way is called longitudinal fission. And that's when they literally split in half and become two new anemones that are the same size. And it's pretty wild. They basically just start slowly crawling in opposite directions. Like one anemone is just like crawling in two directions at once, stretching itself until it splits apart into two. That's amazing. Yeah, right? They're just like Play-Doh. They just split and go off. Yeah, and then another type of budding is when small pieces of tissue break off the base of the anemone and create new small anemones, and that's called basal laceration. These are like fun names. (laughs) I like those. And like I mentioned, this is cloning, so they're creating, you know, genetically identical anemones. And the cool thing about this is because the anemones can clone themselves, they don't really age, so they actually have the potential to live indefinitely. (laughs) Whoa. But of course, they don't live in a perfect and safe world and predators and disease and climate change and bottom trawling get in the way of them living forever. But they can, you know, live a long time. Like they've been known to live 60 to 80 years, which I did not know. (laughs) That's incredible. It gives me a lot more respect for them. Yeah. I I, I feel like we cover so many animals where we're like, yeah, they they actually live a really long time. And uh, yeah, like bugs and and sea creatures. Who would have thought? Yeah. But then like the one exception to that is the octopus, which like I totally didn't know only lives one to two years. This is like the opposite of that. Oh, that that fact breaks my heart every time. But yeah, anyway, we can't get into octopus on this episode. <laughs> Basically, go listen to every other episode we've done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so do anemone have predators? Like you you said, they could live kind of indefinitely. But what what kind of predators would cut off that lifespan? Yeah, totally. I mean, they do have these poisonous tentacles, which you know are not only used to catch prey but they are also a pretty good defense system because not many things want to eat something that's like covered in barbs that are neurotoxic you know like it's just (laughs) not appealing to everyone Um, but there are some animals that will eat them like some snails fish sea stars and even sea turtles and i read an interesting story about a sea slug called aeolidia I do not know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but they will eat anemones, but they have to be careful because they're not immune to the anemone's poison, unlike the clownfish that we talked about last episode. But the Aeolidia actually have a protective coating lining their digestive tract that prevents them from being harmed by any nematocysts it eats. So like we were talking about, you know, not all the nematocysts are going to go off at once and so you could be eating it and they could be like going off in your digestive system but they have this coating to protect themselves and then the really cool thing is that they can actually retain any undischarged pneumatocysts and use them for their own defense (laughs) that's a baller move what yeah like i want to know more about that like what does that actually look like like do they throw them up or like (laughs) it's, it's like that meme where they're like call the hospital 
but not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, yeah. That's incredible. (laughs) So another question I had about anemones, like, can they... Can they move around or are they just like stuck in place forever like barnacles? Yeah, I really thought that they were stuck in place, but they can move and to quite different extents. So some anemones are actually free floating and never really touch down and they just like swim around like they kind of like almost like a little pancake undulating. Yeah, Um, but for the majority of anemones, they're just like slowly moving around on their foot like a little bit you know like into some different territory or whatever like they're gonna they're gonna fight someone (laughs) um but they also can detach themselves and float to like a new location if their environment becomes inhospitable at at that point aren't they just jellyfish if yeah. I saw that, I'd be like, that's a jellyfish. <laughs> I know. I do feel like they're pretty similar. It's like if jellyfish had adapted to kind of like rooting themselves on to rocks and stuff, that that's basically what they would be. Yeah. Wow. So in terms of, of anemone conservation, like how are they doing doing in the wild? They seem very adaptable. You can find them everywhere. Uh, but but are there any concerns for their their health as a as a group? Yeah, it's interesting because there is a lot threatening anemones, but they also are quite adaptable, like you said. Like, they can reproduce really quickly asexually, and they are found, like, all over the world. They can kind of colonize new places pretty quickly. So sea anemones aren't considered endangered. They're kind of one of those, like, when you look up their conservation sites, it just says not endangered you know Uh, Mm -hmm. it's not very specific but I was reading this interesting scientific article that said that despite their important ecological roles there haven't been many studies into the specific threats facing anemones or what we could do in terms of anemone restoration and it's also hard to quantify the loss of anemones because they're so soft-bodied and no parts of them remain when they die so if there's like a you know, like a die-off kind of event, there, there's not going to be, like, bones left or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so really the only way that scientists can monitor the health of anemones is through long-term observation. And in terms of the threats that they face, one big one that I feel like we don't talk about a lot is, like, anchor and boat damage, which makes a lot of sense to me. And then... Like we talked about with the clownfish, there's also a lot of problems with like humans collecting them for aquariums, especially the anemones that have relationships with things like clownfish. Mm. They get collected quite a bit. And then also, of course, bottom trawling, which literally pretty much affects everything in the ocean. But that can definitely be a problem for anemones. And also our old friend climate change which is the most widespread problem facing them for sure. And with climate change, it's interesting because we hear a lot about coral bleaching, but anemones can bleach too. So the algae that I talked about that live in symbiosis with anemones and give them their beautiful colors, those can die off and they lose that relationship and their color. Hmm. 
And one interesting thing that I read as well was that climate change could also mean an increase in cyclones, which, you know, all the like waves and disturbance from that can tear up and like shred anemones and of course devastate the coral reefs that are sort of their habitat a lot of the time. But all that being said, we also just don't really know a lot about how anemones will be like specifically affected by climate change and and we need to also know how resilient they are so that we can figure out solutions and whether it would be possible to restore anemones if necessary or what, like what kind of prevention we need to do that kind of thing so yeah mm-hmm. yeah how do you mitigate those effects totally so <laughs> on that kind of depressing note I mean they're not endangered so that's good but that that is good. Yeah. That's happy to hear it. The that's the sea anemone. Wow. Well, thanks so much, Sophia. I learned so much. I I realized I didn't know a lot about anemone. Anemone. Me too. <laughs> I I always appreciate when we do episodes where there are things that I commonly see because then I just feel like I appreciate them so much more when I see them. Oh, definitely. I I feel that intensely. Also, when I learn how to identify things, I'm like, wow, I appreciate this so much more and I'm excited to see it. Yeah. So I hope if you see that crinkled up pincushion on the beach, you're like, hey, there's an anemone and now I know more about it. And thanks everyone so much for listening. Um, Don't forget to check out our merch store at etsy.com slash shop slash beyond blathers if you want to support the show. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Beyond Blathers to see Olivia's amazing episode illustrations. Of course, tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye. Bye.